So let's get started with a word of prayer. Lord, we just come before you and we ask you for the safety of many Christians around the world during this time when Russia is on the attack and who knows what else is going to happen. You know, we know that you know uh, well in advance what's going to happen and that you are going to help us get through whatever we have to get through. We thank you, Lord, for your help and your love toward us. Lord, I pray you be with Jacob today. Help him as he's teaching and give him the right words to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord willing, we will, of course, be addressing the Ukrainian situation in light of biblical prophecy tomorrow on Catching Up with Jacob. Uh, I think that's 7 p.m. No, no, it's recorded tomorrow. I don't know when it's going to be shown, but it'll be recorded tomorrow. Uh, just very briefly, um, it is pretty evident that the iron is not sticking to the clay. The weakness of Europe and a, a joke in the White House, basically Joe Obama, it's just opportunity when you have you know an American president who says the priorities of the Pentagon and the <clears throat> Defense Department have to be inclusivism and woke. The Russians laugh at that. When you have politician generals pretending to be soldiers, the Russians laugh at that. Um, and when you have Europeans who think they can continue to rely on Americans and British to protect them, <clears throat> fight their wars for them, and still do business with Russia, don't worry, the Americans are gonna protect us. Well, not now, what are you gonna do about it? Um, things are changing very quickly geopolitically. And I can see how this situation will be a stepping stone in the arrival of Antichrist, of Europe having to fight its own battles or stand up on its own two feet in the light of, of Russian aggression. And uh, that is basically the situation. Now, it may change with American elections and so forth, but <clears throat> basically continental Europe has always relied, at least since the end of the Second World War, on the American government, the American military, the American taxpayer, even to fund their defense, or the, the majority of it. While countries like Germany and, and, and France don't spend as much on defending Europe as America do, America and Britain do. Uh, it's always been America and Britain that had, had to fight Europe's wars for it and keep the Soviets on, and then now the Russians at bay. And <clears throat> that's just not working anymore. That's just not working. What kind of a change is this going to be? Well, time will tell, but probably not much time. Probably not much time. We've warned about Putin many times that he's a Stalinist, that he's an evil man. But the moral degradation of the West will see anything from a Putin to radical Islam prevailing to a degree as God's judgment on America, on Europe, on Britain, and on Israel. <clears throat> He's always used wicked people, more wicked than you are, to try to bring correction to his own people. 
and I see what's happening now is just in line with what's always transpired. Those things are not our subjects for tonight, though. There'll be your subjects for catching up with Jacob. <clears throat> our subjects tonight is we've moved into the fifth book of Psalms in the Hebrew canon, the fifth book of Psalms, and we'll be continuing tonight with Psalms 108 and 109. But I'm looking <clears throat> very briefly. We have the day seminar of RTN, Christian TV, RTN seminar in England. That'll be in Stoke-on-Trent on Saturday, 1 p.m. at St. Michael's Community Church. This Saturday, as in the day after tomorrow, 1 p.m. St. Michael's Community Church on Bucknell Old Road. Bucknell Old Road in Stoke-on-Trent. The speakers will be Pastor Tim Leach and myself. Additionally, we are still taking registrations. They've given us more places for the Morio Conference on the 20th to the 22nd of May. That will be held in the north of England and uh, <clears throat> bookings are available online through the Morio website. You simply go to morio.org and you uh, book. Now, there's a couple of other issues we've been having problems with. As you know, the powers that be in Silicon Valley are part of the globalist agenda. I'm not speaking conspiracy theories. It's just out in the open what they're doing. They're targeting conservatives. They're targeting, <clears throat> in many cases, Christians and people they don't agree with. And they're lying and they have algorithms, just not even human intelligence, picking out things. And if you say things that go against the party line of the establishment, they will ban you. And other ministries associated with Moriel have been hit. Now Moriel is being hit. So what we're planning to do, Lord willing, is to do our future live streams. Our future live streaming will be done either <clears throat> only on Zoom or will be done on the Moriel website or Moriel Facebook page, hopefully. We'll be streaming these things. We'll be bypassing uh, YouTube and going directly on to the moriel.org website where we will have a feature being designed at the moment and you people can watch this in live stream on the Moriel website without any reference to Facebook. We also of course have the facilities on RTN and we have uh, a plan soon. We're already on Rumble but we're looking to live stream on Rumble additionally but all of our live stream material will be available outside of the operational control of YouTube. We don't have to use them. There are alternatives. And we will be going just to the moriel.org, straight to our website or to the Moriel TV Facebook page. Hopefully that'll be with in, in a few days. But <clears throat> the um, event on Saturday will be live streamed on RTN. It will be live streamed on RTN TV, uh, Christian TV. Uh, fortunately, there's enough alternative things springing up that these people can't keep the kind of control that they presently have. There are alternatives and we're taking the alternatives. We're just not going to put ourselves at their mercy. Um, <clears throat> but again, I only announced these things in passing. Perhaps he will join us on Saturday or watch us on live stream on RTN. And also registrations are still being accepted. I don't 
know how many rooms are left, but they've given us additional rooms for the 20th to the 22nd of May, where that will be David Noakes and myself, David Noakes and myself. Enough of that, let's get on to tonight. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 108. And Psalm 108 is the first Psalm we'll be looking at um, in book five of the Hebrew canon of Psalms or the fifth book of Psalms, the fifth book of Psalms. And our first one is 108 and 109. Again, we're not going through all the Psalms exhaustively or anything of that nature. We're simply looking at those Psalms <clears throat> of messianic and prophetic significance. Messianic and prophetic significance. That is our theme. Now, Psalm 108 is also a Psalm of David, and it's a Psalm. And even today, there are choruses we sing borrowing the lyrics from this very Psalm. I will sing praises to thee among the nations, for thy steadfast love is great, things like this. Be exalted, O Lord, above the heavens, let thy glory be above all the earth. We sing that. Be exalted, O Lord. It's just a psalm, a musical psalm, mostly noted for its hymnody, for its hymnody. And that is true. However, we have an excerpted portion. In chapter 108, beginning in verse 6, we see a change in the person speaking. I will begin reading the psalm from verse 6. That thy beloved may be delivered. Save with thy right hand and answer me. Now we know who the right hand of the Lord is. It's always a metaphor for the Messiah, for Yeshua, for Jesus. Okay. But of course, it's David asking for the salvation of the Messiah. But of course, David is a picture of the Messiah. God has spoken in his holiness. Now that term translated as holiness in most translations is actually tabernacle, tabernacle in the Hebrew from his heavenly temple, okay? But in the times of David, there was the tabernacle of, of David. There was what, what the tent of meeting and so forth, okay? He's spoken in his temple or in his sanctuary. I will exalt, I will portion out Shem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine. Manasha is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab my washbowl. Over Edom, I shall throw my shoe. Over Philistia, I will shout out aloud. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Hast thou thyself, O God, rejected us? And wilt thou not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down the adversaries. It reverts to David again in verse 10. It's David speaking, but he's speaking prophetically. Let's begin in verse 6. Salvation or deliverance is coming by the right hand. 
the Lord speaks from his temple and he gives particular prophecies. <clears throat> Why are we looking at this? Last week, we began to do something. We're going to continue tonight. We normally think of the Psalms about the first coming of Christ. But as we looked at last week, there are also Psalms about his return. There are also Psalms about his return, about his second coming, and this is one of them. I will portion out Shem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Now notice something here. This is an important passage of scripture because it is a passage of scripture that shows us that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are also names of geographical regions, as it were, shires, provinces, counties, and it uses the two, and it uses them interchangeably. It speaks about tribal areas, but it speaks about uh, other areas of geography that are not specifically tribes. Let's look. Shem. Shem is, of course, the modern city of Nablus, modern city of Nablus, where the tomb of Joseph is, where Jacob's well from John 4 is located. And Nablus is built between Mount Gerizim, okay, Mount Gerizim, Har Gerizim, and Mount Ibar, Har Ibar, the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Curse, and in the valley in between is Shechem, is Nablus. Shechem was the first place in Israel that Abraham came to. The first place he came to was Shechem, and he went up to the east, to, on top of the mountain, right to the east, which is Ilon More, Ilon More, and he walked with Jesus. Literally, God manifested, and when God manifests as a human, it's always Christ, and he walked up there, and he was known as Yedidiah, Jedidiah, Yedidiah, the friend of Yahweh. <coughs> okay. Shrem has a lot of important history, and it is a site of tremendous tension today politically. It is the largest city, bigger than Ramla, it is the largest city in the West Bank. It's the largest city in the West Bank, certainly it's the largest city in Judea. <clears throat> okay. And measure out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine. Gilead is the southern hills of the Golan Heights, or the southern edge of the plateau of the Golan Heights in what was known as the capitalist in the time of Christ. The southern Golan Heights, which today stretch into both Jordan and Israel, Ramat Gader, if you've been to Ramat Gader, that would be in Gilead, okay? And of course, our new book, No Bomb in Gilead, will be out very shortly. It's being printed, I'm told. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Now, that term helmet is interesting. We normally associate helmet. We normally look at helmet as the helmet of salvation. We have references to it in Isaiah 59, in Ephesians 6, but here the term is translated helmet, but it says protection, 
thou art the protection of my head. The measure of Sokot, Ephraim, is the protection of my head. Judah is my scepter. Judah is my scepter. Well, let's look at this again from a familiar passage of Scripture in Genesis 49. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Okay. Uh, then he gets into how he ties his, his cult and divine language in the New Testament used to describe Jesus. Okay. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Even the rabbis agree that Shiloh is a metaphor for the Messiah. Shiloh comes from the Hebrew word shiloach, sent, sent, the one who's sent. The Hebrew word for apostle, shaliach, comes from the same root. We normally translate it in English for some reason, siloam, the pool of siloam. But in Hebrew, it's not that. It's, you know, shiloach, shiloach. Okay. So, this idea of the one who was sent, where we get the word apostle, and Jesus is called the apostle of our faith with a definite article in Hebrews, is Shiloh. Shiloh, of course, was the functional capital of Israel before the time of Solomon for 200 years. 200 years years. We think of Mount Sinai, and we think of Mount Zion. We think of these other mountains where the Lord has dwelt. In the Old Testament, Har, uh, Har Sinai, and in the New Testament, uh, Har Sion, in Jerusalem. God will dwell, dwell on Mount Zion. That is true. But for 200 years, he dwelt in Shiloh. They would come to Shiloh to observe the feasts. That would be the place. You can still find broken pottery all over the ground <coughs> from the Paschal celebrations around where the altar was in Shiloh, where the platform, where they built the altar on front of the Holy Ark. Still there. Incredible place to visit. Uh, not easy to get to, but if you're a good hiker, you can get to it. Um, and for 200 years, that was the religious Levitical capital of Israel. The scepter would not depart from Judah, from the tribal area of Judah, not the tribe. The king had to be a descendant of David. The kings of Israel was something else, but the rightful house of David were the kings of Judah, Judea. But the scepter would not depart from it until the Messiah came, until the Messiah came. As we've explained before, the Romans considered Herod the Great to be a Roman. They considered Herod the Great to be a Roman. He was an ethnic Arab, an Idumean. He was an ethnic Arab. But by religion, he was a Jew for political convenience. But by 
citizenship and culture, he was a Roman, and the Romans considered him to be one of them. As we've explained in some of my books, he's a major type of the Antichrist. Convince the Jews he's a Jew, convince the Europeans he's a European, convince the Arabs he's an Arab. He's going to cover all the bases, but I digress. The scepter would not depart. Only once Herod died could the scepter depart from Judah. The Romans then began appointing proconsuls, colonial governors, as it were. Pilate was one such proconsul. They no longer reigned from Jerusalem. Once Jesus came and Herod died, Herod the Great died, the Roman government, the Roman capital, where the rulership was, where the scepter was, moved to Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea, on the coast. There's excavated uh, stone, speaking about Pontius Pilate, excavated at Caesarea, it's in the museum in Jerusalem. There's still a facsimile located in Caesarea. This prophecy literally happened. Uh, the scepter literally departed from Judah after Jesus came. When Jesus came and then Herod died when he was a baby, the scepter departed from Judah. The capital went from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now, I'm not saying that there were not other spiritual meanings to it, but this text is talking about geography and it literally happened. And of course, Psalm 108 in this context is speaking of geography. Back to Psalm 108. Gilead is mine, Manasha is mine. Ephraim also, the helmet of my head or protective my head. <clears throat> Ephraim, the tribal area of Ephraim became synonymous with Samaria not under the Samaritans, but under the Jewish conquerors of the Samaritans, like Ahab. Their capital was Sebast, and Ephraim meant the 10 northern tribes, the 10 northern kingdoms. Ephraim became Israel, as opposed to Judah, later Judea in the south. But then it begins speaking about Arab countries, Arab countries. Moab is my washbowl. <laughs> Not a great honor, is it? Over Edom, I shall throw my shoe. Over Philistia, I will shout aloud. When Jesus comes back, he will reign from Israel. But Moab and Edom and Philistia will be the public laboratories. They're going to be degraded <laughs> in their status. Not the people. We're speaking geography. We are speaking geography. Now, there are other places in Scripture with God's curse on Didan during the millennium. Didan is where Mecca is presently located. 
a judgment will come on the Islamic world and the Islamic nations surrounding Israel when Jesus comes back. They will not have a status. That's just my sink. That's where I keep my washing up liquid. That's going to be what I'm going to do to these, these places. David reverts. Who will bring me to the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Don't forget, David tried to escape from Absalom and Saul, and particularly Absalom, into Edom. Has not thou thyself, O God, rejected us? And wilt thou not go forth with our armies, O God? It's not just talking about David and his fleeting forces. It's talking about something in the future. Will you give us help against the adversary? For deliverance by man is in vain. If there's anything Israel is learning now, with the sellout by Obama and Biden, to Iran, is that you can't rely on America or Europe to protect you. You can't rely on other countries. King Hezekiah found that out in Isaiah chapter 30. Israel will have to stand only on its faith in God, except that they don't have much of a faith in God. And the ones who do profess to have a faith are steeped in Talmudic Judaism. They're further from God usually, than the ones who don't have a faith. You can share the gospel more easy, easier with a secular Israeli than a religious one most of the time, especially the ultra-Orthodox. But then look at this. Through our God, we shall do valiantly. Something is going to happen. Look with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 12. For the nation and the kingdom, which will not serve you, will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. This is what is going to happen with the return of Christ described when he gives Israel the victory in Psalm 108. Look with me, please to the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 17. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth would not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there'll be no rain on them. <clears throat> and if the family of Egypt does not go up to enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This is, of course, speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. Verse 16, it'll come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king. Notice the nations that went against Jerusalem will return there to worship the Messiah. Psalm 108 tells what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. It's going to be his. These nations are going to be subordinated to the Messiah. Now, again, we're talking about 
geographical nations. We are not talking about people. Jew and Arab will be reconciled during the millennium as brothers. That's another subject. But look with me, please, also to Isaiah <clears throat> chapter 63, verses 1 to 4. Psalm 108 speaks of Edom. <clears throat> who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? The one who is majestic in his apparel, <clears throat> marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Notice the voice changes to the voice of the Messiah. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who tread in the winepress? Well, that's the language of the book of Revelation, isn't it? That's the language of the book of Revelation chapter 19. And it says, I've trodden through the wine, trow alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Notice it's the day of vengeance and the year of redemption. The day of vengeance is for the kingdom of Antichrist, those who follow him. The day of redemption will be for the survivors in Israel. There'll be a redemption for the survivors in Israel, but there will be a vengeance against the nations. The situation that exists now, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Or when they persecute us, it's because they hate Jesus. The world hated me, they're going to hate you also, okay? That kind of state that the true church finds itself in, being hated for the sake of Christ, we have to understand that after the rapture, after the rapture happens, that that's going to be transferred to the Jews, Satan and the nations under Antichrist are going to hate the Jews for the same reason they hate the church now. They'll be identified with Yeshua, with Jesus, and the same hatred he has for the body of Christ now, he will display for Israel and the Jews after the faithful church is removed. And of course, this exactly goes hand in hand with what we see in Book of Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, and also in Revelation chapter 14. He comes this way. Now notice it talks about Edom, the same as Psalm 108. It speaks about that region. Over Edom, I'll throw my shoe. But it says he's coming from that way. He's coming that way. Okay. Uh, the garment of glowing colors from Basra. Basra is at the mouth of the Tigris and Euphrates, 
in what's known as the Sha'at al-Rab, Sha'at al-Rab today. It's the city of, uh, of uh, well, Basra. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it's that, oh, I forget the name of the city. It's the same place. It's the, it's the only port in Iraq. It's the only port in Iraq at the head of the Persian Gulf. It was the oil terminal for Iraqi oil. And it's it's still there, okay. Uh, <clears throat> let's look. He's coming via this direction. Look with me, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter sixteen, verse one. Send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land, for Selah by way of the wilderness of the mountain and the daughter of Zion. Then, like fleeing birds or scattering nestlings, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of the unknown. Give us advice, make a decision. Cast your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the outcast, do not betray the fugitive. There is a belief that when Antichrist comes, Jews will flee into Petra and seek refuge in Petra in Moab and in Edom, but they will go to Petra. This is almost certainly related to what we read in Daniel, that for some reason, or this is the reason, Moab and Edom will not be given into the hand of Antichrist. It will be a place where the Antichrist will not have the same kind of control, power, and leverage that he has now. Hence, when David is writing, I want to escape into Edom. Or the idea that there'll be a place of refuge in Edom. Okay. Well, something is going to happen. Let the outcasts be, hide the outcasts, do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer which is, of course, the Antichrist, for the extortioner has come to an end. Destruction has ceased. Oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. A throne will be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. Again, this speaks of the return of Christ and the role he will play, and what will become of Israel and these Arab nations adjacent to it. Okay. We've heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride and fury. His idle boasts are false. Therefore, Moab shall wail. Everyone of Moab shall wail. You shall moan. For the raisin cakes of Kir as those who are utterly stricken. Raisin cakes were like a food of mourning, a food of mourning. And it goes on, a tribute lamb, a tribute lamb to the ruler of the land from Sila, by way of, you know, Sila, by way of the wilderness and the mountains of the daughters of Zion. This place is Petra. Sila is Petra. 
so there is a connection between David trying to flee Jerusalem in Psalm 108, going to Edom, going to Moab, seeking refuge and protection there, and that foreshadows, foreshadows what was going to happen to Israel at the close of the age before the Messiah comes. Now remember, David is always a picture of, well, usually a picture of Jesus in some way. Look with me, please, to John chapter 10, verse 40. When they tried to kill Jesus, the way they tried to kill David in, in, in Jerusalem, it says, he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. Jesus flees into Jordan. He flees into the land of Moab. He seeks safety there when they try to stone him. Temporarily, but then he comes back to Jerusalem. All of these things, what happened to David, prefigure what happens to Jesus. What happens to Jesus foreshadows what's going to happen at the close of the age. As usual, one is to two, as two is to three. David, Christ, Israel. Now we move on to where vengeance is invoked against the enemies. This is also a musical piece, but it is not a song sung by David on a harp or on a lyre. It's something that is sung by the Levitical choir. Although it is composed by David, it was not a song for a single musician or singer as a modern Hebrew. It is something for the Levitical choir, meaning it would be used liturgically, liturgically, in the order of worship. Goes back to a familiar story. Now this psalm is very, very important as a messianic psalm and as a prophetic psalm. If you've read it, you already know why. O God of my praise, do not be silent. They've opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They've spoken against me with a lying tongue. Again, David prophetically foreshadowing Jesus. They brought false witnesses against Christ and so forth. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers. What they did to David, what they did to a greater degree, of course, to the Lord Jesus. It continues, but I am in prayer. Verse 5, they've repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. What did I do? Cure the lepers? Make the lame walk? The deaf hear? The blind see? Bring the little girl back to life? What, what, what do they want to kill me for? Teaching about love and truth? And righteousness? Well, 
things haven't changed much. No matter how much the church does good, taking care of the poor, helping the sick, no matter how much we do that even the world would see as good. If we stand up for God's righteousness and his truth, the world's going to hate us. The nominal church, nominal Protestantism, etc., Roman Catholicism, they will try to find accommodation with the world and acceptance by the world and freedom from persecution by just becoming social welfare organizations. If all Jesus did was miracles, they wouldn't have crucified him. But he preached righteousness and repentance. Then it goes, appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. Wherever you see that term right hand, highlight it in yellow. When he's judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his prayer become sin? Oy. Let his days be few and let another his office take. Well, let's understand this. Turn with me, please, to uh, Psalm uh, 29, Proverbs 28.9. But he who turns away his ear from listening to the Torah, the law, the word of God, even his prayer is an abomination. Even his prayer is an abomination. Well, that's quite a thing. Even his prayer is an abomination. The prayer of a backslider is not just offensive to God, not just an insult to God, it's an abomination. The prayer of unrepentant backsliders, people who knew the truth and depart from it, is an abomination. Well, he's living with his girlfriend, but he still prays. He's adding to his sin. If she's not his wife, he shouldn't be living with her. Well, he's in the world, but he still believes and he still reads the Bible sometimes, I think, but he, he prays. There are rank unbelievers that pray when they're in trouble. <laughs> Even the prayers of a backslider are an abomination. God would not hear it. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Let his prayer become sin. Now, we know this is a prophecy about Judas from the book of Acts, don't we? Judas, like Esau, who foreshadows him, found no room for repentance. Even when he tried to repent, he couldn't do it. He went back to the Sanhedrin and tried to give the money back. He had one last chance when Jesus dipped the sop. The Lord always gives an, a backslider a last chance. But after that, that's it. He couldn't even pray. He couldn't even pray. 
let his days be few, but another his authors take. Look with me, please, to Psalm 55, 23. The Psalm of Betrayal. But thou, O Lord, will bring them to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed will not live out half their days, but I will trust in thee. Now, Psalm 55, again, like this Psalm 109, is a prophetic psalm about Judas. Let's look at it. It teaches general things about those who will fall away and betray one another, but it has a general, more general, more general message. Let's look at it. <clears throat> Verse 12, for it's not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it if it was a Roman or something. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together. We walked in the house of God in the throng. Oh, boy. Verse 20, he put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He violated the covenant. And these guys are slick like Judas. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. They go to destruction. There are those who betray other Christians. Jesus said this would happen. Many would fall away and betray one another. But this is going to coincide with the advent of Antichrist, the son of perdition. And we know that Judas is the son of perdition. As we always say, and we've said it 10,000 times, whenever you see something about Judas, the Holy Spirit is trying to show us something about the Antichrist. I point you to my book, Shadows of the Beast. So <clears throat> we see this pattern of behavior. Back to Psalm 109, the prophecy in verse 8. So let's go back to verse 6, sorry. Appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. This is what we see in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1. Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1. Satan accusing Yeshua. Not Jesus Yeshua, but Yeshua, who was the high priest at that particular time, who's a type of Christ. This foreshadows Antichrist. Let his days be few. Let another his office take. Look with me, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Verse 15. And at this time, now this time has to do with the Omer, the Omer, the counting of the growth of the grain harvest of the spring, the Omer, okay? <clears throat> and the Omer 
is seven weeks and then followed by the Feast of Weeks, Hag Shavuot, which is Pentecost, okay, when the Book of Ruth is read, okay? So this takes place during the Omer. Jesus ascends on the 40th day of the Omer. Pentecost is the 50th day at the end of the Omer. There's a 10-day period. Now, again, we've talked about this on other teachings, and it's in my books, that 10-day period in the Omer between the 40th and 50th, when Jesus ascended, but the Holy Spirit had not yet come, that 10-day period, has an autumn counterpart in the days of awe, the 10 days between what's now called Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, and Yom Kippur. But again, a related but separate subject. I'd point you to the books or the recorded teachings. So during this Omer, Peter stands up. Well, Jesus has ascended, but the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. And he begins to talk in verse 16. Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So Psalm 109, according to Peter, is a prophecy about Judas. And it goes on. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now look at the comparison with Psalm 55. He was counted among us. He received his portion in the ministry. When Jesus sent out the 12 and the 70, he was one of them. He was doing miracles and healing the sick. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his guts burst out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, the field was called Hakadoma. Dom is the Hebrew word and similar Aramaic word for blood. Dom. That is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Psalm 109, let his homestead be made desolate. Let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken from us, one of these should be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That is a deep mystery that we address in the book, Shadows of the Beast. It speaks something about Antichrist, very crucial, but we're only going to look at it in terms of how it fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 109. Bearing in mind, it has deep meanings for the close of the age and the advent of Antichrist. Well, let's look then. Matthias comes forth. Notice he had to be somebody around from the baptism of John 
And he had to be somebody who uh, saw the resurrected Christ physically, okay? Saw the resurrection, but he had to be around from the time of John. Paul, Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus, had co-equal authority with the other apostles. This is for sure. He had co-equal authority with them, and he did see the Lord. But he was not around from the time of John the Baptist. He was not a disciple from then. Paul would not have qualified to be one of the 12. Some people have ignorantly said they acted in the flesh when they sought the Lord and cast lots to choose Matthias. They should have waited for Paul. This is all nonsense. This is all nonsense. Paul did not fit the job requirements, even though he was an apostle of co-equal authority with the others. He was not of co-equal stature, and he said so himself. Equal authority, yes. Equal stature, he said no. He's the least. The church seems to look at Paul as the greatest. Because God uses somebody the most doesn't make them the greatest, necessarily. Well, Peter quotes from Psalm 109. And he says it's about Judas. So we know that this psalm, written by David, has a messianic and prophetic meaning for the first coming of Christ, specifically his betrayal and him being murdered by the Sanhedrin and the Romans. When he's judged, let him come forth guilty, in verse 7 of Psalm 109. Let his prayer become sin. He went too far. His days are few. Didn't last much longer. But then it says, let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. We do not know if Judas had a family. He may have. Let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all he has and let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Lest his posterity be cut off in a following generation, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be permanently before the Lord and do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off memory from the earth, because he did not remember to show loving kindness, but persecuted the afflicted and needy man, Christ, and the despondent in heart, to put them to death. He also loved cursing, and it came about that he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. Notice the word cursing. But he clothed himself with cursing. There's the term again. Well, you see a term occurring twice in a particular text. It's emphatic, and it means something. Something that the rest hinges on. 
it's a cardinal word in the context. And cursing as with his garment, and it entered into his body like water, and the oil into his bones. Let it be as a garment with which he covers himself, and for a belt with which he constantly girds himself. Let's wait right there for a moment. Again, whether Judas had biological children in a family, we do not know. And if his family was part to what he did, we don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. But understand what the scriptures mean by children. It is a general term. Sometimes it's called just sons in the masculine. The New Testament says we are to be children of light. In the character of light, the true light came into the world. Okay. Sons of righteousness. Okay. Just as there are children that are a result of birth, there are children that come into being as a result of second birth. We come from darkness to light with second birth. Children of darkness become children of light in Christ. Now, if Judas did have a family and they repented, they would be saved. God would not hold the sin of Judas against them. We have other passages of scripture that deal with this, uh, about God's justice, if there was a repentance. Otherwise, the curse of the father's on them. But now let's understand this. Children of light, children of darkness. Jesus told the Sanhedrin, you're of your father, the devil. They were not the biological descendants of Satan, but they were in the character of the devil. In the character. There are children of Judas today. They're all over the place. There's a lot of them. They will turn against the faithful church. They will turn against the faithful believers. And they will do it for some self-serving motive the way Judas did. And like Judas, they'll be slick, they'll be smooth. You won't know who they are at first. But there have always been children of Judas. And in the last days, there's no shortage of them. Many will fall away and betray one another. Now notice what it says again about the cursing being clothed with cursing. And in verse 17, he loved cursing. Cursing, klala in Hebrew, is an interesting term because it has two aspects that are related but separate. Two aspects. And in Hebrew, you'd say benigud, in contrast to. It is what it is in contrast to that tells you what kind of cursing it means. One 
Kala comes from the word kal, light, light. The word honor is kavod, and it comes from the word kaved, heavy, heavy, which is also the word for liver, the heaviest organ, weight-wise. Kavod, kaved. When you honor, it's something weighty for you. You give weight to it. To dishonor is you take it lightly. Honor thy father and mother. It's something heavy for you. Now, of course, it has to do with the Greek word honorarium and so forth, looking after them financially in their old age, etc. But the opposite of to be heavy for you is to be taken lightly. Somebody who's just written off as insignificant. That is one of the meanings of curse. The other is what you see here. It is in contrast to blessing. It is in contrast to blessing in verse 17. He did not delight in blessing. To bless, leverech in Hebrew. When you see curse used in contrast to bless as its opposite, it means to speak disfavor as opposed to speak favor. Okay. So the word curse can be used two ways, but it's what it's in contrast to that tells you which way, generally speaking, in Hebrew. It can mean to dishonor, if it's in contrast to kavod, heavy, or it can mean to speak or disfavor upon, if it's in contrast to bless. But he wears it like a garment. <clears throat> it entered his body like water, and like oil into his bones. Now look at verse 19. Let him be as a garment with which he covers himself and a belt with which he constantly girds himself. Let this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord and those who speak evil against my soul. Notice it's not just Judas. It's those who behave like him. When somebody turns against the faithful church, why do you do this to me now? Verse 19, covers himself with a garment and a belt. He constantly girds himself. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. We are to wear the garments of salvation. He clothed me with the garments of salvation in Isaiah. The same as we wear the garments of salvation. They wear the garment of cursing. They will be forever accursed. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, you have to have the wedding garment to get in. 
faithful believers will have the wedding garment washed in the blood of the Lamb. These other people will not be dressed for the occasion. It speaks of their damnation. But then it says the belt with which he constantly girds himself. We know from the armor of God, which Paul in Ephesians 6, using the Roman legionnaire's armor, uh, modifies the text of Isaiah 59 and 52. Keep the belt on, the belt of truth. If you take off the belt of truth, the breastplate falls off. What is the breastplate? The breastplate is the breastplate of righteousness. You take it off. In other words, these people wear this belt 24-7. They never are going to take it off. They wear it constantly. The faithful people of the Lord wear the belt of truth. We don't take it off. Now, I know the crazy Mormons have that underwear that they wear. <laughs> you know, they're nuts, but that's another thing, you know. <laughs> and in World War I, the soldiers in Britain and America, they, they would get their fiancés to wear chastity belts, and they couldn't take them off, so the guy got back, and they got married. This kind, of, this kind of stuff goes on with the Mormons and all that stuff, crazy stuff. But these things happened, and they still happen. Okay. But with these people, these ones who betray what they know is right, the children of Judas, the same as the people of God wear the belt of truth 24-7. Because if you take it off, the breastplate of righteousness falls off. The belt holds it on. They wear the belt of error, of falsehood, even of heresy, apostasy. They never take it off. And it becomes God's judgment on them that they can't take it off. They reach a point where they can't get back. Let this be the reward of my accusers, those who speak evil against my soul. But thou, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for thy name's sake, because thy loving kindness is good, deliver me. Lord, do it for your name's sake. The name of James Jacob Prash is nothing but mud, unless you make it a name in your book of life. Praise God, he writes our name in the book of life. Because otherwise our name is mud. And he does this for his own name's sake. In other words, God saves us for the sake of his son. Father, forgive them. God couldn't turn that prayer away. He does it for his own name's sake. Because thy loving kindness is good, deliver me. 
I'm afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I'm passing like a shadow when it lengthens. I'm shaken off like the locust. My knees are weak from fasting. My flesh has grown lean with fatness. I've become a reproach to them. When they see me, they wag their heads. Well, we know what this is predictive of. Look with me, please, to Matthew chapter 27, verse 39. And those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Okay. This tells us that Jesus was probably crucified at a crossroads or a thoroughfare or near one because the Romans wanted people to see what was happening anybody they didn't like. Then it goes on. They wagged their head. Help me, O Lord, in verse 26. Save me according to thy loving kindness. Let them know that this is thy hand. Thou, Lord, has done it. Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to smite him. He smote Jesus so he wouldn't have to smite us. Let them curse, but do thou bless. When they arise, they shall be ashamed. At the resurrection, all of these unsaved people, now I'm not talking about soul sleep here. I don't believe in that. But there will be a judgment at the resurrection. And their sin will confront them but thy servant shall be glad. Let my accusers be clothed with dishonor. Let them cover themselves with their own shame as with their own. This goes back to verses 18 and 19. With my mouth, I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord. And in the midst of many, I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul. Yes, that's talking about David. It's talking about Jesus. But it's talking about us. Talking about you and me. And it also speaks of those who will betray Christ, betray the body of Christ at the close of the age. Speaks of those in the character of Judas, son of perdition. Clearest picture of Antichrist we have. May already be alive. In fact, I might be surprised if he isn't. I don't know. I'm not saying he is, but the way it's going and the way it's looking, it's a reasonable question to ask. What I do know is this. The New Testament tells us who this psalm is about and what it means and what it is going to mean. This indeed is a psalm that is both messianic and prophetic. Lord willing, we will be continuing next week 
with Psalm 110. Psalm 110, another very important, very important Messianic Psalm. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless.